Spectre Cinema Club, episode 167. Dan on Letterboxd gives The Exorcist 4 out of 5 stars, saying, I love that their strategy to get the demon out was for boring old white men to come talk about religion to it. I would leave too. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Spectre Cinema Club, a podcast obsessed with the horror subgenres within. I am one of your hosts, Garrett McDowell, sitting across me virtually this week. It's Devon Taylor. Hello, hello, and uh, what an excellent day for an exorcism. I'm sure that's what your uh, mom said whenever you were born <laughs> on this day today as a recording day. Uh, it's Garrett's birthday. Happy birthday, Garrett. Thank you. Yeah, I was also cast out of my mother's womb, you know. <laughs> uh, but no, uh, very happy to be here recording, talking about uh, certainly one of my favorite horror movies of all time. Uh, and to get into character, I too smake, uh, uh, smoked a bunch of cigarettes, and I'm ready for this episode. No, just kidding. I, I'm cu- come down with a cold unfortunately so if i sound a little gravelier than usual that's the reason why hey we, we like a little texture to our voices we love that because i realized that whenever i was editing the uh event horizon episode i was like because we recorded that one like super early in the morning and i was yeah. like hung over uh, my voice sounds <laughs> like shit in that episode uh, so sorry about that guys but you know things happen uh, but yes, we are closing out our month on uh, Possession Movies, uh, one last effort to save your soul. Uh, as uh, we talked the Mac Daddy of it, I mean, we kind of had to, 50-year anniversary, uh, William Freakin passed away earlier this year, so it's been, uh, you know, uh, as if the love for this movie does ever goes away, but there was, you know, again, that, you know, mm-hmm. next wave of, again, people being like, hey, we we really need to remember how good of a movie this was, so... Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, so we definitely had to uh, center our whole month around it. It's the kind of the perfect movie to end our uh, normal 2023 coverage. This is the last episode of 2023. Uh, so I, I felt like it only made sense uh, to go out on a banger movie. And of course, we had to bring back a, one of our uh, top guests uh, making his fifth appearance, uh, retaking the lead over Donato. Uh, you guys were tied for a half second. Uh, taking the lead back, uh, it's the host of the Safe Room uh, podcast, uh, a horror gaming podcast over on Bloody Disgusting. It is our good friend, Jay Krieger. Guys, thank you so much for having me again. And Garrett, happy birthday to you. And uh, you. yeah, stoked to chat about what is one of the greatest horror movies, one of the greatest films of all time. Let's get down to it. Yeah, I don't know if uh, you listened to uh, the previous episode uh, that Donato was on. He 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 threw out the gauntlet to you, Jay. That now it's a competition. So you guys are <laughs> you guys are tied with appearances, but he will uh, be uh, retaking the lead uh, once or no. You took the lead with this one. He'll be tying you again next month. So uh, in 2024, we're gonna have to have both of you guys on at the same time to duke it out. Ooh. Sounds good. It's good company to have at the uh, at the top. <laughs> Hell yeah, and um, as we've been uh, covering Possession movies this whole month, uh, what is your take on the subgenre as a whole? Do you like Possession movies, the, the sheer number of them, and or any religious uh, connections that you may or may not have to the genre? Um, you know, I'm not a religious person, so I view all the Possession films through the lens of uh, you know a non-believer, I suppose, but um, I'm not always super taken with Possession and religious horror, and that, Devon, you and I have talked about that in the past. Um, just hasn't always gripped me the way that I wish that it had just because of, you know, I find there's sometimes they get a little lost in the weeds with 
uh, proselytizing and there's a lot of fire and brimstone heavy dialogue and a little too heavy handed in that regard. So, you know, I would say that, of course, something like The Exorcist is an automatic standout, but even something more recent like When Evil Lurks um, would be a film that I would go to as being an example of, you know, a possession movie that doesn't lose sight of like the human aspect of it and the human element mm-hmm. and seeing the toll that the possession is having rather than, again, getting in the weeds kind of with scripture and whatnot. And, you know, we're all going to hell and this is what the ramifications of that, that type of stuff, uh, which has just not always clicked with me and not always interested uh, me from a character point of view. But, you know, I've enjoyed some uh, possession films based on sort of the body horror aspect. They lean more into that, um, but it's not one of my favorites. But like I said, I'm excited to chat about what is one of my favorite movies. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It's it's tough because, again, like just of the sheer numbers uh, that they've had, you know, like it's kind of the, the batting average isn't always the best. But however, with that variety, I think we especially more recently are, you know, getting more of those possession style films, like you said, that aren't specifically, uh, you know, centered around religion or religion isn't the centerpiece of it. Uh, because, I mean, it's always going to be there to, to somewhat of a degree. Um, but at the same time, with the sheer number of possession movies, we get a lot of variety as well. And I think, you know, uh, the, the four choices that we had this month, we kind of hit a few different corners that I was pretty uh, happy with. Yeah, I think you were talking about a lot of the the tropes that, you know, we've expected to see in a lot of these exorcist films, some of which we've talked about in this very month. And it's always kind of nice to go back and look at a movie like this. And you just kind of have that aha moment of like, oh, this is where it started. Oh, okay, I see. You know, and I think, yeah, some people might, you know, especially newer audiences or people who have never seen this film before go back and watch it and just kind of be like, yeah, it's, I've seen a million of these. And it's kind of like, yeah, that's the point. You've seen a million of these because (laughs) of movies like this and of how influential uh, and memorable they are. Yeah. So we got, we got lots to talk about, lots of legacy things uh, to discuss uh, as we take it all back to the beginning of the OG uh, possession film. Well, not the OG, but you know, pretty much the OG for all intents and purposes. Let's go ahead and get into the movie for today's episode. The Exorcist, released December 26th, 1973. Uh, As of today's uh, release of this episode, it is the 50th anniversary to the day. Um, uh, released the day after Christmas, those rascals, uh, wasn't actually Freakin's idea. He actually did not want it released around Christmas. Um, but then, uh, the, the studio kind of talked him into it and, uh, I think it's kind of perfect for the film. I mean, it, it, it's kind of a Christmas movie, not really, but it, it's cold. It's, it's, it's a chilly movie, um, mm-hmm. uh, directed by one Billy Freakin, um, written by William Peter Blatty, uh, who, uh, did the screenplay based off of his 1971 novel, uh, cinematography done by Owen Roisman, uh, score done by Jack Nietzsche, and edited by Evan A. Lotman, uh, Norman Gay, and Bud S. Smith. Um, it, this was a box office success uh, at the time of release, but also, uh, you know, over the years with the many re-releases, uh, bringing in $441.3 million against a $12 million budget. Um, you know, it had lots of viral marketing campaigns and things like that, kind of earliest examples of that. Um, and so uh, it did fairly well and has continued to do very well. Um, uh, Jay, <laughs> what do you think this has on Rotten Tomatoes? Uh, 174 reviews. So, of course, these are going to be kind of more modern reviews and stuff. So uh, what, do, what do you think the percentage is at right now? Um, I would guess that it's either 
you know, mid nineties or just straight up a hundred. That's what you would think. Apparently there's um a lot more contrarians on uh Rotten Tomatoes than you think. Um, you know, some of these people coming out, oh, it's not that scary, it's not the blah blah blah. Um so it has a seventy eight percent. So there's there's a twenty two percent uh rotten reviews out there for the Exorcist, which I don't get it. That doesn't cowards. make much sense. It doesn't make much no, see, but that's the funny thing. They think that they're not cowards by being like, I'll review I'll post a rotten review of the Exorcist. I don't give a fuck. Like well, I'm sure it's some uh there are a few religious publications in there that took some oh, uh, some issues yeah. with uh <laughs> with the subject matter. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, we do we do still have those floating around. Uh Garrett, what do you think the letterbox average rating is right now? Well, I think the people over on Letterboxd really have it figured out, and they're probably cued into how good this movie actually is. So I'm going to say it's probably a 3.8 out of 5. Um, uh, Pretty close, a 4.0. Um, hey, so, so I'll take it. Voice of the people, they got their heads on uh, straight for the most part here. Um, An average of 8 out of 10 overall. I mean, that's pretty pretty damn good. Um, and we're not going to get too much into the background and such because that would be an extra hour onto this podcast. Uh, there's many documentaries to check out, uh, many other uh, podcasts that go into a little bit more depth. We're more about, you know, what's on the screen type stuff, but uh, a few uh, notes to shout out obligatory at the top. Um, this is a, a notably a, a curse set with many anomalies happening uh, throughout production and post-production as well, like birds flying into circuit breakers and uh, the uh, death of numerous crew members or uh, their family members, like in the time following behind it, like closely behind it, uh, like McGowan, uh, uh, Malarios, uh, and a few, uh, uh, a lot of maintenance techs, like the people that operated the AC for the room, uh, people that were shipping the, the statue, Mm. Uh, so so unfortunately uh you know just a, a you know very bad luck uh for a lot of people that ended up kind of working on this uh Blatty brought freaking in over other directors like Mike Nichols and Stanley Kubrick but it would also begin their decades long uh on and off beefing uh with each other sometimes they're kind of friends but then uh there was lawsuits involved and then they were and then they joined up together to sue Warner Brothers <laughs> so it's like uh they've had an interesting friendship over the years um, and then uh, Blatty would go on to direct uh, The Exorcist 3 uh, to, you know, kind of do his uh, thing with it after uh, The Exorcist 2 was what it was. Um, and, of <laughs> course, um, as a lot of uh, horror films in the 70s, uh, freaking with some of his uh, questionable methods uh, on set, you know, such as shooting guns off randomly to get reactions from people and, you know, doing numerous, numerous takes with these uh, dangerous stunt equipment and things like that. The set was freezing. Um, so, you know, uh, this, uh, again, this is well documented and uh, we are not here to um, posthumously uh, cast more against freaking uh, against, you know, the kind of things that were going on a set, but they were not OK. Um, so, uh, Jay. As we brought you on here to talk this, um, take us back to the first time you remember watching this, and then also uh, which uh, cut did you watch for uh, today's episode? So the first time I watched this movie, my dad, who is not a fan of horror movies at all, uh, decided that this would be a good film to show me at like 10 or 11. And I grew up in a household where like I didn't, wasn't allowed to watch R-rated movies and all these things, but for whatever reason, one Halloween, he was like, well, you know, it's an Oscar winning film. You can't not see this film. Uh, and I think we made it, I don't know, 15 minutes, 20 minutes into the film and then had to just kind of peace out and uh, revisit it a few years later. But 
you know, it is the type of film that every time I revisit it, the older I get, I latch on to new parts of the film that become my favorite. So, you know, when I was a teenager and finally saw it in its entirety, I was like, oh man, this is crazy fucking movie that they were able to pull off in the seventies, what they were able to do with the child actress and just how creepy it is and the makeup effects and the things that they're able to have her do. in that is just so over the top disturbing. And then the older I get, the first half of the film ends up becoming my favorite instead of the back half of the film now, because of the fact that, you know, it is more about the characters and examining them. And that really is the perfect primer for the back half of the film, which I wouldn't say that I don't enjoy now, but it's not necessarily my favorite aspect of the film. Um, mm. And I frequently will revisit the theatrical cut because that's my preferred version. Um, I think that, you know, we'll probably mention a few elements of the director's cut, but that's uh, certainly not my preferred way to watch this film or to show this film to people. Yeah. Uh, as one should watch, you know, of course, first time always do a, a, a 15% dry run when you're 10 years old. I think I think a lot of people had that similar upbringing with this. And uh, yeah, we'll definitely get into uh, some of the differences uh, in the cut throughout. Um, but um, I have like kind of the, the side by side thing pulled up. Uh, but Garrett, uh, take me back to uh, your your first exposure to The Exorcist and uh, which cut did you watch for this? You know, I'm just thinking about little Jay Krieger just, you know, watching The Exorcist and he doesn't even get it out of the desert with Max Moncito. <laughs> He's like, oh, this is too much. I'm out of here. You know, too intense. Uh, His dog's really got me. That's fantastic. Um, I also remember very vividly first watching this film. I believe I was a similar age, probably uh, 12, 11, something like that. I remember we also watched around Halloween time. I won't get into it now, but some friends uh, played a practical joke on me while I was watching this film, uh, which scared the shit out of me because it happened like right in the exorcist scene. And so I, you know, I'm on pins and needles and this they, they pranked me very, very good, uh, scared the shit out of me. But uh, this film has continued to endure uh, long, you know, after that initial watch for me. It truly is one of those seminal horror films. Devon and I just did a, a commentary for The Thing, which was so much fun. And I said that that, uh, to me, is on the horror movie Mount Rushmore. And right next to it, it's The Exorcist, you know. Uh, it's such a, a wonderful, wonderful film for everything that Jay was already talking about in regards to the characters and the performances. But I also think that Friedkin's direction of the film is so daring and uh, focused. Uh, I'm really excited to kind of talk about his approach to this film, approaching it more from a dramatic you know, perspective rather than one of of um, spectacle and, you know, kind of what horror maybe was closer to at the time. Um, I think the kind of the air around this film is almost bigger than the movie itself. So I think it's kind of nice to just sort of waft that all away and just sort of, you know, dive into this movie 50 years later and really see what Friedkin was trying to communicate, what Blatty was trying to communicate as well. And, you know, you push aside all the controversy and the, the behind the scenes stuff. And let's, you know, talk about what actually is, you know, the soul of this film. And I think what you'll find is a really riveting movie that is anchored by terrific performances, really uh, strong characters uh, and, and, and ones that you just kind of have to root for in watching this film. There's there's probably nothing that we're going to say in this episode that hasn't been said before. But to me, that's just, you know, points to how great and influential this movie is, is that even 50 years later, there's still so much to say. Yeah, like uh, it, it was definitely very tough. Like uh, I, I saw that with a lot of uh, letterbox reviews, people are just like insert thing that you've heard elsewhere uh, for this movie, you know, yeah. because I mean, yeah, what what kind of hasn't been said? But uh, at the same time, it is one of those movies that every time I come back to it, it's like uh, like, you know, 
you the the imagery from you know the the you know possession exorcist scenes themselves and uh you know Linda Blair and the makeup and all those things are like so uh you know iconic and seared uh in people's brains that like every time I do watch this it's like oh no like this is Ellen Burstyn's movie like and I'm here for her and this like you know familial drama that's happening I do uh often like just be like man yeah the the, the first you know I mean because really uh, uh, Father Marin doesn't show up until there's 35 minutes left. So, I mean, it's like, uh, the, the a real good chunk of this is, you know, more of this domestic terror. And mm-hmm. it's also like, you know, when I've heard people, uh, uh, e- uh, occasionally call this not a horror movie, like, or not, or maybe not say this is not a horror movie, but say the, this is a drama, you know, through a horror lens. But the, the whole crux of this movie is about fear. It's this fear that this family has, that this mother has for her daughter that she does not understand, and she has nothing that she can do about it. And like, and then the fear that that instills in these preachers and priests that have kind of dedicated their life to believing certain things, but then even when they come face-to-face with the things that they're supposed to be ready for, they're scared shitless, too. You know, like, this movie is about fear at its core, and that is what horror is all about for me. Um, and... Uh, I got introduced to this, how many people our age uh, got introduced um, to The Exorcist uh, through Screamer videos. Um, you guys remember those back on E-Bombs World and things like that where it'd be, you know, something else. Oh, hey, watch this rocking chair. And then up, oh, it's it's Reagan face. <laughs> uh, you know, so like Reagan's face haunted me for years before I even saw the movie. I was too terrified to watch the movie. I was like, oh, this is the movie where she's from. I'm not watching this, you know, but like. Oh yeah. my god, my fucking uncle who who introduced me to a lot of horror throughout the years. Um he he would do this thing where he would um set Reagan's face to be like his uh his like screensaver on his computer and then he'd be like, "Oh hey, can you go grab my cigarettes from my room upstairs?" and then fucking go in, it's pitch black and just Reagan's face just sitting there like in like the pack of cigarettes like right in front of the computer monitor. Like classic shit. uncle maneuver right there. That, that's a that's classic a great uncle, uncle move. <laughs> that that it really is. Um yeah, so so that's I remember just that haunting me for years and the first time watching it, I mean, I was still only like 9. Uh, we watched it in broad daylight, like it was like sun beaming in through the windows, and I was still like just scared shitless watching this thing because the amount of dread that it induces is yeah. uh, phenomenal. And then as I've gotten older, even though I don't have kids, I mean I have Cal, of course, but like you know, just really relating to um, Chris's plight of just watching a loved one, you know, suffer. You know, one, you're literally doing everything that you can mm-hmm. uh, possible. You know, that part weighs on me now more as I rewatch this film over the years. But, of course, um, hopefully you guys have uh, seen this movie. I would assume you have. Uh, if you haven't, what are you doing? Um, because, of course, we're going to get into uh, spoilers here uh, after uh, Jay gives us his 60-second uh, synopsis. Are you ready, my friend? I am ready. All right. Well, I got you here on the clock in three, two. One, go. Adapted from William Peter Blatty's novel of the same name, William Friedkin's 1971 multiple Oscar-winning film The Exorcist stars Ellen Bernstein as Chris McNeil, an, an actress residing in Georgetown, Washington, with her young daughter, Reagan, who's experiencing strange behaviors. Paralleling the growing concern of Reagan's behavior is Father Damien Karras, a psychiatrist at Georgetown University, who's having a crisis of faith, leading to him wanting to leave his holy vocation. The McNeils and Karras' paths intersect when Reagan's behaviors turn supernaturally violent and all manner of medical tests are inconclusive. 
leading to Chris seeking Karis out to persuade him to perform an exorcism as she believes her daughter is possessed by none other than the devil himself. What ensues is a film that favors examining faith, family, and one's character rather than the typical fire and brimstone proselytizing of most possession and religious horror films. Boom, with five seconds to spare. And uh, if that synopsis sounds familiar, uh, it's because, yeah, so many films since then have, I mean, the, the structure of this film um, is kind of, I think, the most recurring uh, motif throughout possession movies. I mean, it's like, it's a family member. Oh, are they sick? No. Is it something else? No. Oh, they must be possessed by a demon. And then it's the middle half is trying to convince people, you know, of what you're seeing and trying to find somebody that will believe you. And then, uh, of course, you know, the titular exorcism scene at the end uh, where you see, you know, various horrific things happen. Uh, people mm-hmm. die. Uh, people suffer. You see uh, the, the, the longstanding motif of having contortionists. Uh, in the films to do all these like body contortions and things like that like so the the structure of this film I think uh, even even more so than the themes because I think uh, a lot of uh, films don't tap into the the human themes that this one does but as far as like structurally uh, that's where a lot of uh, this uh, where you kind of see it uh, in the DNA of other films going on Uh, so let's talk subgenres here Uh, Jay what are um, some of the um, strongest subgenre elements that are working for you besides, of course, the possession angle? Yeah, you know, I think that as a character study, and it was something that we mentioned briefly before, you know, it's some people have described this as like not really a horror film. It's more of this kind of kitchen sink drama and whatnot. And for me, as I said earlier, like that's the part that I latch on to the most now uh, with each rewatch is the attention to these characters. And the fact that, you know, we get to know them in such an intimate way that feels almost like a sort of documentary style, I think. Um, That was one thing that the film, the version that I watched uh, had a brief intro from Friedkin, who said that his intention with the film was about a realistic portrayal of the inexplainable. Um, And I think that he does that really, really well, first and foremost, because we kind of feel like a fly on the wall with a lot of these characters and we get to see them struggling with things before, you know, somebody's possessed and there's this battle for a little girl's soul, right? It's about this mother that is trying to raise a daughter that has these things that come up and, uh, you know, she has no answer for the medical professionals in her life have no answer for. But even before that, you get the sense of what her relationship is like being a parent that, you know, is on her own a majority of the time, it seems like, like her ex-husband can't even bother to call her, his daughter to say, hey, happy birthday. He's off, you know, gallivanting in Rome, I think. And, you know, the struggles with that and the fact that, you know, she's this actress that is dealing with those types of struggles and intensities that come with trying to facilitate that role on top of being a parent. Um, but then, you know, you have Damien Karras, who is having this loss of faith and this crisis. It's quite literally, he says it. Uh, he tells one of his uh, fellow priests, he's just like, yeah, I've lost my faith. I'm not cut out for this anymore. Um, and I think, again, to highlight just Friedkin's very keen eye in capturing people in their lives in a way that feels very organic, um, the ways in which he's able to parallel these characters' lives against one another without it feeling, I don't know, like spectacly. It just feels very natural and gradual. Like, of course, you have uh, the McNeils that are in this lovely brownstone. I mean, the first interaction between uh, Chris and her daughter Reagan is them debating whether they're going to get a horse when they go back to California. So like that right there kind of tells you their sort of level of income and their stature 
And then mm-hmm. that's cut against Karis, who, you know, he's this priest that is fallen out of love with his work. He doesn't see it as being purposeful. He's not, doesn't feel like he's capable of even helping people. And then you see him walking to his mother's. He has to take public transportation. He doesn't have a chauffeur like the McNeils do. He's walking through the neighborhood. There's kids that are like jumping on a broken, abandoned car. There's people slugging whiskey on the street corners. And then he goes up to care for his mother, who, you know, clearly is not getting the medical treatment that she needs. She's got this wound that then, you know, that further progresses. And we see that toll that that takes on her health and whatnot. And, you know, Friedkin's ability, again, just to like very quickly, very succinctly and very genuinely, I think, portray these characters and just telling, showing us a lot more than actually having to tell us uh, certain things, which I think is what helps this film really, you know, sustain the first half of it before you even get into the supernatural. It's the type of thing where I don't agree with people that say like, oh, this isn't a horror film, but I sort of understand why people that maybe are not attuned to horror or a variety of different types of horror films, as obviously the three of us are, are kind of like, well, where's the scares? Like, I need scares now, 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 but that's really not the point of The Exorcist. Um, and it's such a stronger film for the specific structure that Friedkin gave it. Yeah, I, I really do have such an issue with the, how staunchly people are kind of set in their ways about defining what is and what isn't a horror movie and exactly what constitutes that. Because I think that this film, obviously in the plot, is a horror movie. It's a possession movie. You're going to look me dead in the eyes and say that The Exorcist, famed as one of the most famous horror movies of all time, is actually not a horror movie. <laughs> get get fucked as far as I'm concerned. By the way, if you are if you think this podcast is going to be like two guys saying like, well, actually The Exorcist isn't very good. Good. You've listened to the wrong podcast. <laughs> I feel like we're all going to probably be in agreement here that I think that this film and exactly what makes it so scary isn't the last 20 minutes of the movie. The reason that people were so drawn to this film is because of the conviction that they felt towards these characters, because this is uh, Warner Brothers adjusted for inflation, their second highest grossing movie of all time. Do you want to know what surpassed that? Barbie, like a couple of months ago. So this is a, dr- a juggernaut of not just horror, but of cinema. People flocked to this theater to see the spectacle that was this film and ended up, you know, being really attached to a lot of these characters. And I think that that is in part because this movie deals with the unknown. It deals what the asking those questions, of course, of, you know, what is this thing? that is plaguing this daughter, this, you know, Reagan and this young girl, this kind of young, innocent girl, what's exactly going on with her. There's also this mystery, a murder mystery that's happening in this film. And the, the fear of the unknown about what could happen to loved ones when, you know, outside evils kind of, you know, come for them. I, I think that there's such a great deal of uh, care put into characters like father Karras, as you were mentioning, Jay, that I really do feel like bolster the horror of this film. And I, I just because there's not, 10 jump scares every five minutes like that doesn't mean that this is suddenly isn't a a, a horror movie and let's also acknowledge there are also jump scares in this movie there are like multiple ones that that desert scene that freaked out little jay krieger that has a few jump scares throughout the the first like 20 minutes of this film so yeah just because you have a lot of rich characters and you know um a, a story mostly about family that doesn't mean that it's suddenly not uh, a, a horror film where I find like the scene with Lieutenant Kinnerman and, and Chris McNeil who are like sitting at the table kind of uh, having this sort of verbal sparring between the two of he's trying to prove and get answers about what happened to this murder while she's like defending her daughter. That is like one of the tensest scenes of the movie and it's just two people talking. So yeah, uh, I, nay nay to anyone who says this isn't a horror film. Come on, be real. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it was interesting because, I mean, this was a multiple Oscar-nominated, you know, film. Um, and so, it you know, it brought a level of prestige to horror, but then it also kind of still spurred those conversations of, like, 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 for me, this is a testament of, like, hey, you can have both. Like, this is this is where you can have a super scary movie that gets under your skin while also diving into some deep character work and themes and things like that. Like, that's that's still, you know, you can have both. It doesn't have to be one or the other of either seeing this and being like, well, it's, it's great because it's not actually a horror movie. It's like, no, it's great because it's both and it's able to do both mm-hmm. of them. So this would be, like, my film that, like, I, you know, because I still encounter people today that, like, just don't give horror a shot because they only have a very narrow-minded view of it. And this is just, like, a classic, like, hey, like, you can take my word for it. This is a 70s classic. Look, it's got the awards. There you go, blah, blah, blah. But then, like, but no, like, this is a truly terrifying film with, you know, many layers to it. And the domestic Mm -hmm. horror definitely sticks out so much to me. Um, as well, because like I said, like it's this, you know, you, you, you have this loved one and you're doing everything that you want, you know, to, to try and help them. And, and, and there's even, uh, I, I wouldn't call this eat the rich because, uh, uh, Chris is definitely not a villain in any way. Um, but there is still a level of, of like kind of showing like, look, this is a super rich affluent person that even with all of her money and resources, even she can't, you know, help her daughter. And that's like terrifying, just like mm-hmm. to to any degree, whether it's somebody that is of an upper class stature or even lower, you know, uh, either way you kind of view it, it still has like that horror in it as well. And um, and the the, the medical horror itself, I think, uh, is a big standout for me um, as you know, you uh, again, like you, you you you're used to being able to you go to a doctor, you get answers on how to fix something, you know, like that's usually generally how it works. Um, and you know, you're able to see results and you're able to see things happening. Um, but then whenever you're seeing these things and then all the tests are coming up negative and there's nothing and these, you know, super intelligent people have no answers for you. That's fucking terrifying, you know, because it's like, mm-hmm. it's like, uh, I would, I wish you would tell me that I have cancer versus, you know, being, uh, having a demon possession because, Hey, at least I know what to do with cancer. Uh, I don't know what to do with a demon. Like, goddamn, like, you know, so and and the scenes you know this is a very for the most part it's a very quiet movie like it's a very kind of moody somber movie the loudest portions of the movie are when they're at the hospital and Reagan's getting all these examinations and these whirring machines and big ass needles in her face yeah. uh in her neck uh and all this shit and like that's one of the um angles in um the extended cut that I like that there's like a another uh, some extended sequences at the hospital and it's like it's terrifying shit like watching like how uncomfortable like Reagan is like during all these examinations and just like how fucking loud and oppressive it is and like that's the real tangible horrors there versus you mm-hmm. have these quiet horrors that are like kind of incurring in her body that she doesn't know what to do with you know so so that angle you know leaks into the body horror uh stuff that we get throughout the film with the a fantastic you know special effects makeup but uh but yeah so the that that's the stuff that you know definitely gets under my skin even more so than any of the religious angles 
And I think that because this movie does have sort of this unknown enemy or this air of mystery around it, yeah, we, I know it's literally the devil, but I do think that that is kind of a reason why a lot of folks have attributed so many different meanings and interpretation behind this film. Is the enemy of this movie, you know, uh, racism or, patri you know, the patriarchy or religion or organized religion, or could it be uh, an allegory for, like, cancer and, you know, losing a child to something like that? I think that this is kind of... Uh, a Rorschach test of a movie for a lot of people. And I think that Freakin is capitalizing on that fear of unknown, like Devon was talking about, of trying to get those answers and trying to fix what's wrong, you know, with, with your child. In regards to some of the other big themes in this film, you, you guys talked a lot about the class of this movie. And something that I really latch onto this film is uh, how Freakin is able to incorporate uh, staircases in the movie, which is a common uh, uh Point, uh, you know, image throughout the film as characters either going up or, or, you know, going down stairs, which of course could mean, you know, in more of a religious perspective, like we see um, with uh, Father uh, Karras's mother, where she's going down the subway steps, potentially going to hell. But we also have characters who are kind of ascending and descending, even class, you know, with Father Karras climbing up these giant steps to this very affluent family. Meanwhile, he can't even support himself and he's living in this, you know, shitty, like almost like rocky stuff style apartment you know uh and I, I think that Friedkin is able to use you know those stairs to really illustrate that theme that you guys were talking about I think he's so poor that he is living on Georgetown campus I think he's just in that little dorm room right and you know yeah. one of the when you talk about the uh, the sort of class elements of this the line that sticks out to me is when you know his clearly some time has passed since he saw his mother wasn't able to help take care of this wound that she has properly so it clearly got infected and she's having these episodes. And so they have to put her in an asylum because there's no money for send her to get proper treatment. Um, and I think it's his uncle that says something along the lines of, he's like, Oh, well, you know, if you were this big psychiatrist, like you should be, she'd be living in park Avenue. Instead, you're this priest and we have to put your mother in asylum. And that's always yeah. the line that stands out to me uh, most just to kind of, again, reinforce the contrast between these characters sort of existences within this, but you know, there's also, I was just going to say, there's another line that I really like, too, where she's talking. It's when he first visits her, and I forget which family member she mentions. Maybe it is the uncle, to where she goes, oh, uncle so-and-so came and visited me the other day. And he goes, oh, yeah, when was that? And she goes, a month ago. And it's like, oh, my God, nobody's come to see her in a month. That somebody that she saw four or five weeks ago, you know, is like a big deal to her because she's just not seeing anybody. It really nails that the isolation and the loneliness that she feels. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the loneliness and isolation is an interesting aspect to this that, you know, that I kind of focused in on this most recent one is, you know, again, even though the McNeils kind of live in this big house and there's even, you know, there's other people around, they have their staff, you know, their house staff that's around, but even with these people, like, they still feel alone, you know, like, because you don't really see Chris, like, you know, like, calling her family or talking to her friends like through these situations there's nobody going to these hospital visits with her um you know despite you know her stature in life you know so it's like uh there, there's something uh interesting to that and then like you said like kind of Karis living in this like kind of dungeon that he's like kind of cast himself in for beliefs that he's not sure that he believes in anymore uh mm -hmm. you know so it's like there's you know that kind of you know uh you know where that kind of puts you at mentally as well uh, is fascinating and 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 it's interesting because uh this film uh very much is you know kind of you know making statements uh, against the church you know this film uh you know had was noble for all you know all the different 
organizations coming after him after the release. Uh, poor Linda Blair needed a bodyguard for like a year and a half after the film because uh, people were sending a 12-year-old death threats uh, for, for endorsing the devil, um, you know, and and there's something about... Um, the, the Exorcist, the movie that's like, you know who's really cool? The devil. What a great... Yeah. <laughs> this Imagine that being so your takeaway about this. <laughs> Wild, you know, and, you know, and it's interesting that in the first half of the film, whenever we do see the priests, uh, the, the various ones, they, they are, like, kind of framed in this, like, kind of un, unworldly way. Like, you know, like, they're kind of have, like, a little bit more brightness to them, and they're, like, kind of shot with their robes, you know, flowing in the wind and stuff, you know, mm-hmm. and they're kind of... Uh, you know what the idealized image of these people are but then as soon as they get to the house oh like they're they're fucking nobodies they're nothing they have they and they have nothing that they can do and whenever someone um you know when that kind of person is broken then what you know what like what does that mean for you uh whether or not you subscribe to the religions or anything but it's like me watching somebody with these like kind of convictions and the way that they are uh held up in society in certain ways um to only get knocked down you know a peg by pazuzu and this is like a, a very fascinating angle to me yeah i really do like what you had mentioned about that idea of of loneliness right and i think that you know I, I I know a lot of people have latched onto this film of being sort of this William Friedkin dig on, again, kind of what I was already talking about, where it's just fill in the blank of whatever you think the other is, the, 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 the terror is. A lot of people attribute this movie to being anti-feminist, showing how when a husband isn't home and, you know, not taking care of the family, look looks what, you know, look what happens. Like this little girl got possessed, where I think that Friedkin is more using this lonely, loneliness to isolate these characters and really magnify the the helplessness that they feel because we do see her searching for answers going to doctors after doctor after therapist after therapist i think that really heartbreaking scene to where uh she confronts uh um father karis which she's got the the glasses on like covering the black eye and she's just like will anyone help me please like she's just begging for help meanwhile the church is all caught up in litigation and procedure and approving things and she's like she could die while you guys are figuring figuring all of this out so i feel like the ice Isolation is not necessarily as thematically impactful for me, but it is impactful of where it positions this character kind of separated from everyone else. Yeah, there's there's a you know, the, it, it ties into there's a, a whole sense of identity in this as well. You know, we've kind of touched on it with uh, Chris as a person and uh, Karis kind of going through this, you know, battle of fates. And, you know, trying to prove to himself, you know, like to, you know, like he has everything's kind of falling around him. He's, you know, he's drinking more. His health is also declining. Um, uh, one of the Ram details, I love that he's a boxer because it's like, well, you could give the demon some hands, Karis. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Like what's going on? So whenever I was taking my notes, I uh, listed them all in rounds, the different exorcism scenes and possession <laughs> scenes. I'm like, all right, who's got this round? Who's got this one? Um, but. Um, but there's also like, you know, him trying to, you know, kind of prove, okay, am I, you know, am I coming from this, from a psychiatrist background? Am I coming from this, from a priest background or am I like, what do I believe in? Like as myself, not as my title believes. Mm -hmm. And that even goes into the way he interacts with the demon. Um, because you know, it is kind of like, is this the devil? And then he's like, well, if you were the devil, you could do these certain things. Um, you know, so like, there's a lot of time spent in him trying to say like, are you the devil or are you not? And it's like, bro, it doesn't matter. This is a demon about to fucking kill this girl. You guys are fucked. Like, it doesn't matter the title. 
you know, it, what matters is good and evil. You know, this movie comes down to like kind of that. And it's, you know, it's a very black and white concept. But at the same time, there's so many layers to be like mined at from it. Well, that's why I love Father Marin's uh, introduction when he comes to the house, right? Is that Karis is all excited to tell him like, oh, this is the profile of a mass about the personalities. And, Karis, mm-hmm. and uh, Marin's like, there's one. And that's all he says. And I think that even in the director's cut, they extend that sequence. So they have this conversation about why Dragon's being targeted and this and that. But like, that speaks to, I think, something like have, how great the cast is in this film with Max von Sydow, where he's like, he just shows up and he is the authority figure. Right, we know, of course, from the very intro. He's like a foot taller than Karis, which cracks me up for some reason. Like he literally (laughs) comes in and is just like towering over him. But you know his stature, uh, whether it's just within the church or quite literally, you know, being shoulders above uh, Karis, it's the thing where he doesn't have to say a great deal, which is why I think you know removing some of that dialogue for the theatrical cut um, really speaks to again just like his presence. So when he shows up, he's able to just be this authority figure, but then of course we see uh, how that plays out. But one thing that I wanted to mention before we move on is, you know, um, I always view this film as being sort of like this societal commentary because thinking about when the film came out in the seventies and, you know, clearly there's uh, a nod to like the anti-war movement at Mm -hmm. the time period against Vietnam and these things. And, you know, even to what Garrett was saying about the fact that, you know, oh, maybe this is what happened. You know, people could view it through the lens of like what happens when, a husband is not in the household or a man is not in the household type of thing. And it's like, well, we're having these modern uh, sort of movements and waves and people are evolving the ways that, uh, you know, they're living their lives. People are having more options slowly but surely. And, mm-hmm. you know, it. I view the film kind of as being Friedkin's commentary on what happens when the foundation of society seems like it's crumbling or at least it's very uncertain, right? There's a lot of societal changes. There's a lot of world changes going on. And I always viewed it as being like, well, this is the type of opportunity perhaps that a supernatural force could like take advantage of to wreak havoc. And, you know, who's going to really notice that's Mm -hmm. the big thing for me about this film. The more I watch it is like, well, this might be a headline if, you know, at the end of the film, let's say Reagan died as a result of that for the time period, that's going to be a headline that's probably pushed to page eight or nine because, you know, there's a war breaking out and all the different things that are going on in this country and just around the world. Um, So like, I never really viewed the movie as being, anti-religion necessarily but i think that it's more just looking at society as a whole and saying like i guess the isolation aspect feeds into that right the more people are isolated the more people are divided the more instances that certain things could happen it just so happens this one is the devil uh you know possessing a little girl i mean yeah and i i I think it is really talking about devon you'd kind of mentioned it where like you were watching this movie in broad daylight and it was still terrifying the fact that most of this movie is in broad daylight you know it is that idea of kind of this this unknown evil coming into uh your your house coming into your day-to-day and impacting your children and there's really no escape from that it isn't the you know the the scariest house on the corner and you venture in like this old haunted house no it's your home it's 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 in broad daylight in this beautiful uh city you know that's ridden with leaves and it's gorgeous outside you know like i really do think that this film is about the manifestation of of evil anywhere even like in 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 a domestic setting i did want to talk about father karis you guys were talking about like the detail of him being a boxer which i really like um not only does uh, jason miller and the way that he got this role was was pretty fascinating they had cast somebody else with his uh, uh with his role and had f- like filmed like multiple scenes with them and then jason miller you know found a way to contact friedkin and then they had recast 
system. And Warner Brothers is apparently like totally baffled by this. But I think that Miller really embodies this character super well, which is this man who is a fighter. You know, he's trying to fight uh, to save somebody. He wasn't able to save his mother. And so he's fighting to save this little girl. And the way that he does that is this real battle of conviction, right? He's losing his conviction. He doesn't really have uh, himself to uh, this strong connection with, with God anymore. And I think the conviction that he does find is in his ability to actually save someone, not spiritually, you know, save someone. Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely like, I mean, I, I find it funny that it's on the nose, but at the same time, like it very much is it, very emblematic of like, you know, the, the different battles and fights that are kind of happening uh, throughout this film. Uh, Jason Miller's son uh, what is uh, Joshua John Miller, uh, one of the screenwriters of The Final Girls, and um, it, that's what kind of went into uh, part of the inspiration for making that film was uh, when his when Jason Miller eventually passed away. Um, he thought it was an odd sensation to watch The Exorcist because it's like, on one hand, I'm getting to watch this, you know, amazing performance by my dad, you know, and like kind of mm-hmm. see his face. But at the same time, I'm watching a film where he's dying in film and like that's something he's kind of famous for. So then once he like kind of died in real life. So uh, The Final Girls kind of came out of uh, some of those feelings that he had uh, about his dad in this, um, which I, I've always found very interesting. Um, but uh, let's get into uh, some of uh, the set pieces and performance uh, stuff in this one. Uh, Jay, what is uh, the, the scene for you where uh, shit, shit gets real for you? Like, what, what is the, the, the scene that you're just like, oh, okay, now we're, we're in it? You know, I think for me, and it's to, uh, to go back to like young Jay's first time watching this, um, the introduction with the Iraq uh, dig site, I find that to be such a culmination of anxieties while not tipping their hat too much into the supernatural, right? I think the fact that they're able to make that scene and have allusions to what's going to happen throughout that, but not have to, again, rely on the supernatural too early on. Because, you know, again, talking about Friedkin wanting to come out and make a film that was more realistic for a horror film. And even, you know, in some early interviews, the way he talks about horror is not always like he's a big fan or super positive. But I think that it's the right attitude to go into a film like this, because the fact that he's able to not only craft the atmosphere of like the presence of evil, but not showing evil is really smart in terms of just the overall pacing of the film. And again, talking about Max von Sydow's performance in the fact that, you know, a lot of the anxieties are environmental, right? You have, for starters, it's a stranger in a strange land. He's surrounded by people having conversations that he understands, but the audience themselves does not, does not, right? Because of that language barrier for the most part. Um, And then you just have him being in the city streets and you have not only people that are, you know, hammering things, which is very loud, again, talking about the sound design in this movie, which is why it won an Oscar for sound design. Um, You have just this really deafening hammering that's going on. You have him almost getting run down by a horse and buggy, and it looks for a fraction of a second like the old woman in the back of it is like smiling at the fact they almost ran him down. Um, And then, again, talking about like the presence of evil, when he gets out to the statue of Pazuzu, and then you have, you know, the dogs fighting as soon as he starts staring into it, right, which is really intense and really loud. And then you have that almost apocalyptic sort of blood orange um, sun, right, that's in the background. And you get the sense uh, that he knows that something is coming um, and he doesn't have to say what it is because you can feel the presence of it. And you can feel how sort of foreboding that is. Um, and I think the biggest sort of indication of that is when he's on, he's kind of like about to leave 
and then he's talking to a colleague uh, about what he found or something and he mentions evil and then the clock stops right and the hand mm-hmm. stops on it and it's like oh is it the presence in the room now of what evil is um, yeah. and i find that to be a perfect primer again for just the overall tone of the film and how it approaches horror in an unconventional way for the time period for a majority of the film and then at the same time it instows in the viewer that like he is the authority figure so again he doesn't have to show up you know with 30 minutes left in the film or 45 minutes or whatever and start spouting all of this sort of uh biblical literature or just like oh well you know when i did that exorcism in africa this is what i did or this and it's like no we know that mm-hmm. he is the authority on evil because he has sensed it without having you know fire and brimstone and everything appear yeah um so for me that's always been like the initial moment of the film that like you know that's why it terrified me all those years again because of just how overwhelming it is uh without having to rely on I suppose, you know, the traditional possession or religious horror tropes. Um, but I have a lot here, but I want to hear what scenes for you guys were uh, initially gripping. Well, I'm curious, when you watch this film as a little boy, do you remember, did you leave post or, you know, pre-giant cock statue? Did you, <laughs> did you see that and you were like, I'm out, this is too fucking weird, I'm getting out of here. <laughs> I think I had some questions and my dad was like, this might have been a mistake. We'll, ta- we'll talk about it later. Um, <laughs> I, I really like, I think that's definitely the, the right answer. I really like the scene of the Ouija board um, uh, under the house. There is that great sense of foreboding there. You also get some nice, like, bonding between uh, Reagan and her mother. She also, like, tucks her in you know to to sleep after that you see that they have this really nice relationship but i love that when she's talking about you know captain howdy she kind of seems like she's done this before you know like that she's talked to this guy before and she's played this game before and that this isn't the first time that she's communicated with you know those who have departed and so this idea of maybe she's already kind of opened that door you know to be possessed i think is really really creepy and unsettling i I think it's kind of funny watching this scene now because like the the difference between um you know movies now when somebody's playing with a ouija board compared to in the 70s like (laughs) chris is so casual like oh yeah let's play your fun game i've never understood how like that a ouija board like somehow got propagated into being a quote-unquote game Devon, is, that's is, some white people shit. Let it me tell really you right is. Now, I, I have it, on good authority that is some white people <laughs> like, shit. She was that's so, Hasbro chasing the bag. She was so chill and cavalier about it. Just like, oh, yeah, yeah, have fun. Oh, he, Captain Howie doesn't want to play with me. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. Um, it, yeah, it's still a very creepy scene uh, for sure. Um, it, for me, um, I mean, it's either of the first uh, first two possession scenes that we uh, that we get with uh with reagan before uh father Karras is brought in uh the first one is like you know we have the you know reagan flopping up and down uh and then uh slaps a doctor in the face uh and of course you know some uh, uh some of the iconic you know just like the the vulgarness that we uh see from possess reagan is uh kind of been another kind of trademark i would say throughout um possession movies is you know as soon as they're possessed it's ah fuck me this you know stick a cock up here blah 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 like all these things <laughs> and like but it was obviously so crazy seeing this movie because this is a 12 year old actor doing this uh so i mean uh, I, I i'm not one of the people that says it like ironically to be like oh the exorcist is hilarious there is a funniness to you know uh, some of the things that she says throughout this film um and also uh I think the funniest line of the film comes after the first uh, possession scene where they go back to the, they're going back to the hospital and she's like, 
maybe run more tests because they didn't come back. Uh, and he's and she's explaining the incident that happened. She's like, oh, you know, like the bed, it was shaking. I jumped on top and it was me on top. And the doctor looks at her and goes, Miss McNeil, the problem with your daughter isn't her bed. <laughs> it's her brain. And it cracked me up for some reason. So uh, that, that that first possession scene is, uh, is very fun and uh, obviously iconic for many reasons. Yeah, there's so much, uh, so many scenes in this film that truly are, you know, the definition of iconic, right? And the definition of influential. The Exorcist is one of, of course, the most influential films in horror history. But I still find, even on, on all of these rewatches, the quieter moments are kind of what sings for me a little bit more. You know, obviously the possession scenes are great, but again, I love that scene with Lieutenant Kinderman, portrayed by the fabulous L.J. Cobb, who is just terrific in this movie. He doesn't have a big role, but when he shows up, he just makes a really big splash uh, but him talking to Chris and just having this kind of you know tete-a-tete uh, -tete between the two of them I think again it's just it's super tense and you don't have to have you know demons and you know your mother sucks cock in hell and whatever it's just two <laughs> characters talking well to piggyback off that I mean Kinderman as you said is not in a great deal of the film but every instance of him is memorable and one of my favorite instances of his character in this movie is the initial interview between or initial banter rather between Kinderman and Karis, right? When he kind of uh, runs up on him at the track when uh, Karis is uh, yeah. running laps and whatnot. And the balance between playfulness and chumminess and then accusatory and the sort of leapfrogging between those two sort of sides of a detective, right? He basically is the good cop, bad cop, but in one detective. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, I love the dialogue and how it's probably the most play-like aspect of the writing, which again, to talk about William Peter Blatty's writing and him writing the screenplay and whatnot. And it very much feels like a writer wrote this film from the sense of like his novel being adapted into it. Um, because that interaction when I believe Kinderman is saying along the lines of like, oh, well, yeah, you know, they arrested uh, and imprisoned a priest that didn't tell the cops that somebody was capable of a murder or something. And so, and Karis chimes back, he's like, is that a threat? And Kinderman's like, no, it's uh, I only mentioned it in passing. It's like very offhand. Um, and then he goes into like talking about his love of cinema. Do you want to go to the movies? And then just before that conversation ends, he says, you know, I can have you deported. Right. <laughs> and it's like this kind of this shucking and jiving between playful banter. And uh, if you don't give me the information I want, there's yeah. going to be some repercussions. Like, I just love that whole thing. And then, of course, uh, Karis asking Kinderman if people ever mistake him for uh, Paul Newman which of course is ridiculous. And then yeah. uh, you even have uh, Karis with that last, or no, it's Kinderman, excuse me, that has that last jab where he's like, oh, I know who you look like. You look like Sal Mineo, who I don't even know who that is. I'm sure that was a ripper back in the day. But it again, just based off of their sort of like reactions to one another, it's the type of thing where it's like, these are the only two people I think that could make this situation as memorable, as fun, but at the same time reveal so much about their characters. Mm. Um, and again, you know, when we're talking about the actors and the characters in this film, I really don't think there's a bad performance in this movie uh, from yeah. a majority of, you know, the core cast and whatnot. And just the fact that this was uh, Jason Miller's first role mm -hmm. um, is astounding, right? Yeah. And I think that for the time period, with the exception of probably L.J. Cobb and Max von Sydow, I don't think like Linda Blair obviously is a child who had been in a commercial. Uh, Jason Miller, this is his first film. He'd been on Broadway, I believe. Uh, and I think he even won like a Pulitzer Prize. And then, you know, you have Ellen Bernstein, who I believe was only big on TV up until this point. So you have these like this trio that 
are not big movie stars. And, you know, while I came to the movie and didn't know who anybody was, obviously, because I saw this film, you know, 30 years after it was released or 20 years after it was released. Um, it's the type of thing where they don't jump off the screen at me like they're movie stars. And that's a quality to this movie that I think helps the human aspect to be sold a little bit more for me, um, which, you know, again, it's all hindsight type of thing. But um, there's always been an aspect of that where even somebody like L uh, Lee J. Cobb, who I've seen here and there in little character bits, mm -hmm. um, it's not somebody I'm super well versed in. So, like, he comes off as much more believable. Jason yeah. Miller doesn't necessarily have the demeanor of a movie star, right? He is a little more reserved. He's a little more sort of pouting almost. He's very keeping to himself. And I think that that helps to sell him as this person that is, you know, not always saying a great deal, but you can just read a great deal from his face and situations. Yeah. Well, which, which is something that I think is really nice about the film is that sense of realism. I think Jay, you'd mentioned that this movie is kind of shot like a cinema or a, a shot like a documentary. Well, I think that that's because uh, Owen Rouseman, who shot the film, was a documentarian, and he, you know, you was shooting uh, in 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 Cuba, like shooting, you know, uh, F Fidel Castro during like his his whole situation uh, there. And I, uh, there's some pretty funny stories about William Friedkin like talking to him and Roseman would be like oh I didn't quite get that shot we need to go again or they need to stop especially with the big like um the crowd scene where they're filming the movie uh, and Friedkin would be like did you tell that to Castro that you couldn't get the shot just keep rolling like don't cut until I say cut you know so yeah I think that this movie does have that kind of you know um shoot from the hip kind of uh, style to it i don't think friedkin is really the kind of filmmaker he's not a clint eastwood or you know to where he's going to be or excuse me he's not a a, a kubrick he's more of a clint eastwood to where he does a couple of takes and then that's it you know i think that that kind of down to earth this is what makes this film so effective right because yeah. it feels relatable it, that's that's what makes it so scary is that you feel like this could happen to you and i think a lot of that is due in part to yes the way the film is shot but also the actors in this film who are just are terrific across the board yeah that that's what bladdy uh said initially for why he wanted freaking was he wanted the the documentary uh realism aspect that he kind of brought to films uh you know with the casting as well because like you know chris uh they wanted people like audrey hepburn or they wanted jane fonda and not that they aren't fantastic but i'd be watching those movies and going that's audrey hepburn or that's jane fonda yeah. you know exactly. so uh it's kind of a little bit easier whenever like you said like kind of brings that more relatableness uh, to everybody and uh yeah because you know this, this scene uh this film does kind of have the best of both worlds because like yeah the flashy uh possession scenes are fun and interesting and uh you know and there's a lot going on and you know some really cool uh you know practical uh effect works filmmaking going on and stuff like that uh super great the the og levitation scene still goes hard i love a levitation scene yeah. Um, uh, but it's the, the conversations in this film, uh, you know, Jay mentioned it, you know, feeling play like, like, I really hope there's been stage versions of this, uh, because it would go so fucking hard. Like even today, I kind of want to do it now because that'd be so fun. Um, but like some of the conversations, um, uh, I, uh, I say, uh, Karis versus Pazuzu round one, uh, where Karis, uh, first, uh, you know, goes over to house meets, uh, Reagan for the first time. Um, you know, they, they have their kind of little tete-a-tetes like, uh, uh, you know, oh, if you were the devil, why don't you make the straps disappear as they like kind of keep going about this like strap uh, situation uh, and the demons, I like, owe oh, much too vulgar a display of power for you. So it's like they're already sizing each other up in this one talking shit. Uh, round two uh, is where we get the um, one excellent day for an exorcism and 
Karis goes, you like that, and then the way that rings like mm, intensely, uh, and you know it would and like oh, but wouldn't that you know get you out of Reagan? It's like yeah, but it'd be bring me closer to you. It's like uh, what are, what are these vibes? Um, uh, but the but the way that these conversations are just like so simple, you know, two people in a room, one person's in a bed, and there's so much uh, kind of tension and uh, you know, but also like a uh um you know a movement to to these conversations it's not boring like ever and i mean i would say 70 percent of this movie is people in a bedroom talking you know so Mm -hmm. like the fact that you know even these scenes kind of have so much weight to them uh is uh you know such a testament to this uh film in general um yeah Okay, I was just I was just gonna also uh, want to mention the music of this movie, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the music of this film is is so fantastic, and I think it would surprise many people to hear that a lot of the music in this movie is not original music. There's a lot the the main Exorcist theme was pre existing music that Friedkin just you know found, similar to how uh, 2001: A Space Odyssey, the intro of that movie, or the, the the music at the intro of that film is also pre existing music. So I love that Friedkin was kind of going to you know, kind of unconventional means to make this film, right? Like casting people who aren't necessarily household giant blockbuster draw, taking a risk with somebody like Jason Miller, a complete unknown to be essentially the lead of the movie, like the co-lead of the film. It's crazy to think, but I think Friedkin is known for better or worse for being one of those filmmakers who's kind of willing to do anything to get uh, his, his picture made, including shooting guns on set to get an actual reaction from Jason Miller, uh, as well as uh, many, many other things crazy things that this person um, has done but I think when you do watch the film I think a bit of that kind of loose canonness that William Friedkin has does kind of uh, show in the final product yeah you, yeah you can you can definitely feel that for sure it has a, a you know it kind of just has that that ramshackleness to it a little bit you know like this is a scrappy film even though it's you know still had a decent budget and everything but at the same time like uh, it, it's this is a raw movie I, my, my, and my described films as raw like that's this film uh shit like this it's shit like near dark those are raw films uh so yeah you definitely can feel that from freaking coming through two of the quieter moments in this film that have always stuck with me one is the party sequence when you know they're having this big party at the mcneil house and reagan kind of comes down when there's just some people crowded around the uh piano and she has that really sinister line when she looks at the astronaut who's about to you know go on a voyage and she looks at him she goes you're gonna die up there and that is one of the most sinister lines in the entire film and i love that it's early on and it acts like a scare almost i think because of sort of the direction of this film and how you know it's not inundated with you know we mentioned there are jump scares but it's not inundated with a lot of traditional horror scares for the first half so the fact that friedkin is able to and blatty are able to like weaponize dialogue based on who it's coming from that was mm-hmm. one of those lines mm-hmm. that always stuck with me and it was just like mm-hmm. they'd never come back to it they chalk it up to, you know, she's feverish or she's sick or something. But then there's the one-two punch of how sinister that is and how, you know, you view that line as being like, okay, that's the beginning of the uh, of the presence's sort of taking over her body. But then the second part of that is the fact that, you know, she basically wets herself in front of everybody, which then kind of like, again, is heartbreaking to see because it's a child who's clearly not well. And that's followed up with sort of leaning into the medical aspect more so. Um, yeah. And then another scene for me that, is very, very brief, but it has always been such a perfect distillation, I think, of like surreal nightmares or just nightmares in general. And that's after Karis's mother dies and he sees her, you know, mm. Garrett mentioned it, when he sees her from across the busy street 
and she's walking up the steps and, you know, she's clearly speaking or calling out to him, but he can't say anything or he doesn't hear what she's saying. Mm -hmm. And that has always captured the most disturbing nightmares that I've ever had, where it's not that I'm being chased by a murderer or, you know, I'm getting eaten by a monster. It's that like we're in clearly what resembles our normal reality something fundamentally is different about it. You know, you can't communicate with somebody. You, they can't hear you. You can't hear them. Mm -hmm. And like that entire thing, I think not only speaks to how his character is feeling, but the fact that, I mean, Friedkin's able to insert that into the film and then doesn't really overly rely on dream sequences or anything like that. Like mm -hmm. typically I find that in these types of movies, it's like, Oh, the possession is getting worse or, you know, it's, beginning because of the fact there's an, sort of an inundating of these dream sequences and things like that. And the fact that he's able to use that once, it's very fleeting. It doesn't overstay its welcome. It doesn't really have anything supernatural happen in it, but it just so perfectly speaks to like where this character's at. And it's a type of scare that for the period maybe would be out of place almost because it's not abiding by any really you know obvious tropes or just sort of like in your face spectacle moments. Yeah. It, yeah. it, 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 it honestly it only feels a little out of place in this film it actually feels very uh in line with you know the weird shit that people were doing in the 70s i love that she was like demi demi you don't like my pea soup no more demi mm -hmm. uh i will say that i saw that letterbox review Devon. <laughs> uh, I, I will say that i will say that piano scene uh is one that uh i can't watch without thinking of scary movie 2 because scary movie 2 uh, uh parodies quite a lot of the iconic scenes of uh, from this film mm -hmm. and uh, uh the the piano when they're uh singing uh, uh shake your ass is uh, always hilarious to me, and I can't. And and one of the best pee jokes in all of cinema of just her peeing forever. So like, uh, unfortunately, that is the one scene in this that like I watch and I immediately just start laughing about Scary Movie Two in the back of my head. Um, uh, before we uh get into our final thoughts, I wanted to uh get your guys' interpretations on the finale, on uh you know what uh the way that this uh kind of puts a stamp on the themes. Um, and obviously there's uh, the two different uh, versions of the ending. There's one and then there's one with like kind of like a extended coda uh, uh, for it. But uh, what, what do you guys feel about the finale and like kind of what its kind of statement is uh, from, you know, the, the wrap up of this film? And, and, and uh, answer this uh, as if you've only watched this film and not the sequels. Uh, uh, go ahead, Jay. Uh, for me, you know, I'm my emphasis has always been on the character aspect of this. So. I view the ending not so much as like religion saves Reagan, but like a good man saves Reagan, right? And that kind of goes against or goes back to what I was saying about this idea of this film being a commentary on like society at the time that was being made. There's this sort of the foundation is either crumbling or it's very uncertain. Um, people are more isolated. We don't have a level of communication we should. And when we do, you know, you see what they're depicting in the film that Chris McNeil is making, which is the fact that like, okay, you have these people protesting, but then people are telling them they can't, fighting over those types of, you know, the two sides of that argument. And so, you know, I view Karis as being somebody that doesn't necessarily, like, reclaim his faith, so to speak, but it is more that we are seeing that he is a good man who's willing to make that sacrifice to save a child. Even if he's lost his faith, he hasn't lost sort of the essence of what makes him a good person. Um, and I think that, you know, that's kind of reinforced by what we know about his relationship with his mother, right? And it's the fact that if he wanted to, theoretically, he could have abandoned the church a while ago to pay for or to live a more lavish lifestyle of being a well-renowned psychiatrist. 
and the fact that he hung on to his faith for so long, despite the fact that that was clearly, you know, a detriment to his life in certain ways, it was more so like he felt that was the right thing to do was to stick it out with his faith. And so at the end of the film, even though he's lost that faith, faith with which he has made these sacrifices, at the end of the day, like he was still a good person, whether or not he had his faith or not. And the fact he's able to, you know, allow the Pazuzu to possess him. And then rather than just, you know, either running away or something, he quite literally sacrifices himself and then has that descent into hell down the stairs, uh, which is when he meets his uh, untimely demise. Mm hmm. Yeah, I, I think I'm really in a similar position. Uh, I wanted to mention in that scene, William O'Malley, who is uh, uh, Father Dyer, uh, who like kind of comforts him afterwards, also isn't an actor. He is an actual priest and apparently was having a lot of difficulty with the scene, like couldn't quite, you know, bring the tears. So Friedkin, of course, did what Friedkin do. And he went over and he hit him in the face. <laughs> and then so, of course, that reaction that he has is a bit more, a bit more charged, <laughs> a bit more genuine. So, uh, oh God, Bill, Jesus. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, Jason Miller as uh, Father Karras, I think really is kind of one of the heart and souls of this film. And like we'd kind of already talked about that. He is somebody who has, has lost this faith. And I think that's kind of where I see the, the context of the film, as far as being set in the seventies, that's kind of where it is a bit more significant for me. I don't think that Friedkin is trying to make some complex allegory about racism or feminism. I think he's trying to tell a story about these people who are trying to do everything that they can to save the people that they care about. Father Karras wasn't able to do that. He wasn't able to save that person that he cared about. And I think that, uh, you know, uh, Chris going to him and asking for his help is really that opportunity for him to be able to do that. So just like Jay had mentioned, when he allows Pazuzu to take him, He's sacrificing everything that he knows, you know, to to save this little girl, this little girl who he doesn't have a connection with. It's a stranger, but it means that he is able to kind of make good on the, the sins of the past, which is why I think when Father Dyer comes down to him and he says, like, do you want to confess? Like, essentially, like, this is your last chance because you're about to die. He doesn't say anything. And I think that is kind of him sort of silently admitting that he is at peace and he, he did what he wanted to do. And though he may have lost his faith along the way, he finally was able to save somebody just maybe in a different way than he maybe would have expected to save someone as a priest. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think it's fascinating because he definitely does get the, you know, the, the kind of, uh, he gets the win, but not unanimously. Uh, I think uh, Pazuzu does dish out quite a few L's uh, for people throughout this film and, and breaks them like i think you know like at the end of the day like yeah like you know uh reagan is seemingly free of the spirit and like you know they still have their money they're gonna be able to like you know do whatever um but at the same time um you know people's you know they have been now exposed to something you know that is going to kind of change them forever you know fundamentally you know so it's like you still kind of have that lasting impact uh, uh upon them and even with karis like uh, you know, I, I, th to anybody saying like, oh, see, this is what happens when uh, there's no man in the house. It's like, no, no, no. This is what happened when there's shitty men in the house. Uh, when when good men come along, this is what can happen for you. But at the same time, I wonder if, you know, uh, because obviously we do know that like uh, the, the story does kind of continue on. Um, and is it because, you know, Karis, um, uh, you know, like he does this thing he sacrifices himself um but is it still for himself at the end of the day of to to preserve his judgments and beliefs and 
you know, uh, you know, and make up for his past sins, or you know, is it you know still genuinely him trying to save the soul of another person? You know, and I think uh, self-interest is an interesting uh, topic when people you know kind of debate the church and uh, people that service the church and the reasons that they do the things that they do. Um, you know, so I think that you know Pazuzu even still broke him down to a way of like hey, basically saying, like, this is the only way you're going to be able to prove, you know, that you truly believe, and if the only way that I'm going to, you know, be defeated is if you truly believe, you know, so still kind of baits him into it, into, you know, taking him, and then and then uh, jumping out the window, which uh, everybody knows is one of my favorite horror uh, motifs. I have a whole letterbox list of it. It's of, one uh, of the people best, man. Jumping out the, the window, ju- willingly jumping out the window. Like, I mean, he literally somersaulted. Mm-hmm. He did that shit onto the stairs. Uh, uh, yeah, he 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 kind of bodied that. So, um, but I love when Kinderman comes in afterwards and is just like, "What the fuck is going on?" He just looks around, and he's looking at Reagan, he's looking at the window, and he's like, "What is happening?" <laughs> I, I know we haven't done an exorcism in a while, but I don't remember jumping out the window being part of it. it correct me if I'm wrong. Who knows? Um, so uh, yeah, let's go ahead and get into our uh final thoughts. Um, out of uh, out of five what? Out of five crucifixes, man, or holy water, uh, the little Pazuzu heads. Hey, I, you know? I, I've seen where those crucifixes went in this movie. I'm good, good on that. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll go uh, Pazuzu statues. Uh, uh, so uh, Jay, go ahead and give us your final thoughts on five Pazuzu statues. I was gonna give it five cans of pea soup out of five cans of pea soup, but I'm more than happy to give it five Pazuzu statues out of five Pazuzu statues. Uh, yeah, you know. Unequivocally, I still find this to be the best example of possession horror done right. Granted, I have my uh, my sort of biases, I suppose, against religious horror, possession horror in general, and the fact that my gripe typically is that a great deal of them were never able to capture the elements that make The Exorcist so profound and such a strong piece of uh, you know filmmaking and whatnot from multiple aspects. Rather, they latch on to the more spectacle aspects of The Exorcist, which, you know, they work in The Exorcist because of that foundation and the legwork that Friedkin and Blatty and all these fantastic actors we've mentioned really put into the film. Um, so while I don't find that a great deal of possession films learned the, the proper lessons from The Exorcist, um, all these years later, I think The Exorcist actually just gets stronger um, in terms of just how this is still the blueprint for how you would tell this type of story and have this level of engagement in it. Um, and, you know, while I didn't personally this episode highlight a great deal of like the big exorcism scene, it is, those scene, those moments are still profoundly disturbing mm-hmm. and really fantastic makeup work. Um, it leans hard and heavy into the body horror, which I'm a massive fan of. Um, and, you know, I don't think that I have the same reaction to those elements again if the first half of the film was not so diligently spent um, really sort of bolstering these characters and making mm-hmm. me invested in them in a way that. You know, I don't think that a great deal of films that have tried to do what The Exorcist did actually achieve, um, which furthermore, you know, when we were talking earlier about the idea that like people say, oh, well, it's not really a horror film. It's like those people's chief complaint primarily with horror films is that, well, these characters are stupid and I don't care about them. So this is a film that cares about its characters. It goes the distance in making you care about them, understand them. So when all this horrific shit actually begins happening to them. Um, you're locked in, whether it's your first time watching, your fifth time, or you know your fifteenth time. Yeah, about yeah you, I, 
this is really one of those horror movie kind of litmus tests for me. Like, uh, are, can you sit at the cool kids table? And it's just like, do you like The Exorcist? Because I think a lot of people, especially uh, younger people or people of my generation are like, ah, it's an old movie and ah, it's boring. And oh, it's, it's supposed to be the scariest film of all time, but it doesn't quite live up to that. To me, I, I just, I, I have no, I have no room to, uh, for that kind of stuff, man. It's The Exorcist. It's obviously a five out of five. Like this is one of the all time great horror films for everything that Jay had already mentioned and everything that everybody has said about this film. You kind of just have to echo that. I think that this movie is so seminal. It really is not just a horror kind of touchstone, but a cultural touchstone. You know, this is such a significant film uh, in cinematic history. There's a reason why it's uh, up till recently uh, Warner Brothers highest grossing film of all time for adjusting for inflation. I think this movie was a cultural movement and I think that horror has still felt its ripples today. There are so many movies that I still go to see nowadays in theaters and just kind of go, yeah, they're just doing The Exorcist. It's just not as good. And it's it's nice to kind of go back and watch this movie and see why, you know, that is. And again, it's because of Ellen Burstyn. It's because of uh, Jason Miller, LG Cobb, Linda Blair, Max von Sydow, like so many terrific performers in this movie bringing it their A-game, bringing these characters to life in such a touching way. Jay, you were mentioning that scene of the, the dinner party and, so, you know, kind of the, the heart and soul of the, this movie is sort of in that scene where, you know, Reagan has her accident and Chris doesn't yell at her or belittle her. She goes to her and comforts her. And that really is kind of the essence of this movie is this young girl going through something horrible and trying not to go through it alone. And you have this mother there who is just trying to keep her and her daughter alive, keep them afloat. And, you know, the people who are brought into their lives, you know, I, I think it is such a powerful movie. There is so much about the film and kind of the air of the movie that is almost bigger than the film itself. Uh, whether it's what is the movie saying, the circumstances in which the movie was made, the the kind of the cursed aspects of this film. But I think the core of the movie and, and the picture itself, it, it's just it's one of the best, man. It's obviously a five out of five. Yeah, my, my score is my score has fluctuated throughout the different times that I watch this, depending on just the mood that I'm you know in to watch it, uh, you know, or the setting or you know what have you. Um, uh, the only negative uh, that I take away down from this is, uh, yeah, the the desert stuff at the beginning. Eh, I could do without it. You know, that's more for just kind of Pazuzu. It's more Boo. for Pazuzu lore. We don't really need it. Uh, you know, it's fine, I guess. Um, in in the extended cut, they have like some like scenes of like just like some like establishing shots of like uh the McNeil home that are like kind of punctuated a little bit before that to be like because i've had the times where i remember like early on watching it and then watching the desert scene being like wait am i watching the right movie what is this where wh you know where's where's the exorcist mm -hmm. uh you know um but anyways um so so it's a it's a 4.5 out of five pazuzu statues for me um i think the the filmmaking uh, on display is just absolutely brilliant there's so many just oh look at that shot right there look at this amazing shot right there look at the coloring in this right here um, the way that everything is presented is uh, just fantastic without being super flashy. Um, but the performances, uh, Ellen Burstyn, uh, we talked about uh, the park scene where she meets, that's her meeting Karis for the first time and the way that she emotionally unloads on him uh, in such a, you know, like sympathetic manner that you're just like, oh man, like she's really fucking going through it. Um, uh, especially uh, when she's uh, kind of getting flailed around in the room uh, during the second possession scene. Uh, the look of anguish that she just has, like, from that scene for the rest of the movie, 
uh, is just like, I mean, she, uh, Ellen Burson puts in some great work in this as well as Linda Blair. My other thing uh, throughout the month is talking about the kind of dual performances uh, between the possessy and the uh, possessed version of themselves. Uh, Linda Blair, even as just regular old little girl, she's fantastic. Um, but uh, Pazuzu Regan is a, a, is a fun demon, not going to lie. They're sassy, uh, exchanging disc bars and demonic hissy fits uh, with the priests, uh, uh, you know, and uh, you know, the, uh, having small talk in foreign languages. Uh, that stuff's fun, uh, you know, so, so I definitely still get, you know, my possession hallmarks in this and obviously because they started from this. Um, but then, you know, gaining a little bit more uh, a meat out of it every time I kind of watch it because this is just such a thematically dense film. Uh, you know, we could easily go on for another, you know, 45 minutes, hour on this thing. But uh, yeah, so it's going gonna, gonna to sit at a 4.5 out of 5 uh, for me on this one. And, uh, you know, uh, Movie Mask is going to be interesting because this is going to be a, a full reversal. It's like, you know, not what inspired this film, but uh, uh, how many films uh, went on to go ahead and inspire uh, or went on to inspire elements from The Exorcist? All right, All right, here, here on Spectre Cinema, Cinema Club, Club, we like, like to conclude our conversations by playing movie math. Uh, Jay is a bona fide veteran, so I'm sure uh, we don't need to explain the rules, but essentially you just have to take some movies that reminded you of The Exorcist, uh, pick of the litter, <laughs> uh, and put it in some sort of mathematical equation. Jay, what Exorcist movies did you put in your equation? So I actually have two films that are not Exorcism Ooh. films. Uh, I have films, though, that deal with the thematic subject matter that this film actually, you know, dabbles in uh so the films that i should that i selected were uh and i apologize if i butcher this director's name uh aguiesca holland's the third miracle which is a film that's about a priest that's having a crisis of faith that is investigating whether or not these events were miracles that this person that's passed away recently actually was successful in um which i thought well it's a so-so film um the film really does tackle religion in an aspect that i thought was really interesting where you have somebody that's tasked with investigating certain aspects of religion, but they themselves are having this crisis of faith. So I was going to multiply the third miracle by Paul Schrader's first reformed, which I think really does strengthen that crisis of um, faith and whatnot highlights the personal effects and the cost it has on people's relationships while still feeling very realistic and saving the more spectacle aspects for the conclusion. Um, which I think anybody that's seen First Reform knows what I'm talking about. That's a film that does not dabble in the supernatural, and yet when it actually does in the sort of like final moments, um, it feels like it ties into the film in a way where this is the only way that it could end. And it really does highlight, I think, the personal costs from a family aspect of what the crisis of faith in somebody could have. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to divide those films by Rosemary's Baby, and I'm going to remove the occult angle with the remainder of that being the motherhood aspect and the notion that in strange times we turn to strange explanations and solutions um, for trying to solve that which is unsolvable, even if at the time when we're in the throes of that, uh, we don't necessarily know that, oh, this is the reason why, you know, it's the devil or something along those lines. So my yeah. equation was the third miracle, time to buy, first reformed, dividing by Rosemary's baby. Uh, yes, your remainders uh, check out very cleanly. Uh, uh, I see no mistakes in that equation there. Um, <laughs> I, I will say First Reformed, uh, yeah, maybe could have used a few exorcism scenes uh, for me. Uh, but that's a conversation for another day. 
Um, uh, for my movie math, I went very simple on this one to make my my uh, proclamation about this movie. Here's uh, this will be the wildest thing I say, maybe, um, because uh, we introduced uh, not too uh, long ago the square root method, um, where you know where you have a film that you know has gone on to influence so many things uh, that it is basically you know the the it's the origin for you know a certain movie. Um, so I'm gonna go uh, the square root of and the reason I'm picking Square Root is because I think this is, um, of any of the exorcism possession films, uh, this uh, is the most worthy successor as far as themes uh, and thematics go. Uh, and uh, so this is, uh, I'm going the square root of The Last Exorcism. Uh, I believe that was 2010. I think I've popped it into a few other movie math equations because I love this movie. Uh, it's a found footage film. You're following a preacher who is uh still doing the priest preacher thing he's trying to but he fully does not believe it anymore um so when he takes this uh case uh to uh visit a possessed person um are they possessed is it the familiar matters that they're dealing with is it things in their community that they're dealing with is it her uh coming into womanhood uh what is it you know and um you know, using the found footage device to like kind of document, you know, the, this, you know, for evidence, you know, um, and uh, but I think the the two uh, preachers in question uh, go on similar character arcs, um, and I think um, the performance by I don't have her name uh, pulled up right now, but in the last exorcism is one of my favorite uh, possessed performances uh, within the exorcism genre. Uh, so I think at its base level. Um, it is, you know, taking the, the, the core template of The Exorcist and going in slightly different directions to it, but uh, this is the, the thematic successor to The Exorcist, even more than any of the other sequels uh, for this film. Yeah, this is really one of those movie maths where it's you, you have a movie that's so influential, it's hard not to just pick any old Exorcist movie and just say that, yeah, the, the square root of this is The Exorcist. I chose The Exorcism of Emily Rose. Uh, because that is kind of this hybrid of being a drama, uh, but also being a horror film and is really about the, the circumstances and the characters and how it impacts them as well. The Exorcist isn't a legal drama, which is why I have it uh, divided by uh, Signs, also a film about somebody kind of losing their faith and somebody who is really on this path of... Uh, this wavering conviction uh, uh, the main character in that film uh, is a former priest who like lost their wife and uh, a lot of that film was about them kind of uh, coming and going with God uh, and I think that mixed with kind of the drama horror sort of blend that is the exorcism of Emily Rose uh, but just the square root of that uh, it's easy to see how the exorcist uh, kind of still you know the impact is still felt today yeah signs is a good pull for this one uh, I definitely uh, really like that um, it was, yeah, it di difficult in uh, which way to kind of tackle the equation for this one because it is such an iconic juggernaut, and which is why we picked it to close out 2023. This is the last episode Woo. of the year. We made it through another one. Uh, nobody died. We're, and even if we did, our Not souls yet. would, e even if we did, I would transfer your soul or my soul into a microphone, and then uh, <laughs> the podcast would, would never end. Uh, Jay, thank you so much for joining us once again. Um, what are you working on these days and where can people find you on social media? Well, first of all, thank you guys so much for having me back. Not only was I, I believe I was on for episode hundred when we got to chat yeah, about yeah. reanimator, uh, but getting to have me on for the last episode of the year and also get to, you know, semi celebrate Garrett's birthday and chat about one of my favorite films, uh, is always a pleasure. And, you know, I obviously always enjoy chatting with you guys, but 
if people, you know, if I haven't annoyed people too much uh, with my <laughs> thoughts and whatnot, um, currently I'm doing a podcast, as I mentioned earlier, for um, Blade Disgusting called Safe Room, which is a horror video game podcast. Every Monday, my co-host Neil Bolt and I will chat about, you know, either contemporary classic horror games. And then every Thursday we do an episode, which is a shorter episode, but we highlight um, little bite-sized indie games that you can find on a service like Itch.io or something on Steam, um, which is something that doesn't have a big studio behind it. It's typically people that are making these small bite-sized games, either one mm -hmm. individual or sometimes just a handful of people. Um, so we try to like champion indie games just as much as the big heavy hitters every year. Um, and then I'm not ready to say what it is yet, but I am uh, developing a film podcast that's going to tackle all genres, not just horror, uh, in the new year. And if you want updates on that, you guys can follow me on Twitter at NotFunnyJ and Safe Room's Twitter account is at SafeRoomPod. And that podcast is available on all major platforms. And yeah, guys, I hope you guys have a great new year. And I, uh, I look forward to the big things in store for uh, Spectre Cinema in the new year because you guys have done little, I think, uh, snippets of it or little previews and whatnot yeah. already. But uh, I'm really excited to see what you guys are uh, going to bring to your audience and you know, me as well uh, in the new year. Yes, I mean, of course, uh, definitely go check out uh, his uh, gaming podcast. Uh, really good stuff because there's so many great horror video games out right now. We're kind of uh, in a, a nice golden age for that. Um, but uh, thank you for the segue into our Patreon, uh, which will be coming uh, within the next week or so. But So be on the lookout for that as it goes alive. But, of course, there are uh, we've already given you some tastes of uh, some of the content that will be uh over there hope you guys uh recently enjoyed our commentary on the thing and we still have a watching the watch list uh, number two that uh, we will be dropping on the main feed for everyone else but after that uh it's time to buck up break out those uh that <laughs> apple pay uh, uh and uh we got some uh, really fun stuff coming for you there birthday boy what are you working on right now uh, nothing much. I uh, it's funny that Jay mentioned it. I have been l interested in dipping my toe into horror gaming. It's not really something that I've done before, and Hit now that so I got a PS5 recently, and I beat Spider Man, and I uh, beat Jedi Survivor. So those were like the two games that I bought the PS5 for, and so now I'm kind of like, well, what else do we got? So I've got a few uh, horror video games that I've got lined up. Just for me. I, why am I plugging it? Just, you know, personal life updates. I'm not going to be making content about it, but <laughs> I'm going to be playing video games. That's that's pretty exciting. But if you want to actually see what I am up to, uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Letterboxd, uh, as well as TikTok, at Garrett McDowell. I've also got another podcast uh, that is a Star Wars podcast. It's called Scum and Villainy, with new episodes every Thursday. And you can find me at all the usual places on social media, TikTok, Letterboxd. Uh, at underscore daddy disco you can hear me over on the pod and pendulum did a few holiday horror episodes this month on a uh, silent night uh as well as shit what we do before that one can't remember but uh <laughs> I, I i do a lot of podcasts guys uh so uh go go take a listen to those of course and i'm um, uh, very excited uh as uh we will kick off the new year with our best of 2023 uh spending we'll do our ranking episode um uh for the first episode and then the rest of the month will be um our individual uh picks for favor to 2023 uh so very excited uh as we put another year in horror in the books but i'll go ahead and do it for this week's episode of the specter cinema club new episodes drop every tuesday subscribe to not miss a thing you can follow us on social media at specter cinema on twitter instagram and tiktok and if you're listening on spotify or apple Podcasts, leave us five stars a nice little review we appreciate you but until next time guys stay lifted <laughs>